two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Flip Side. My name is Jeff Melly. I'm the head of research at Barclays, and I'm joined today by Zoso Davies, a director of credit research based in London. Hi, Jeff. Thank you for inviting me onto the flip side. All right. In this episode, Zoso and I will be discussing negative interest rates, what they are, why some central banks have been using them as a policy tool, and whether they help or hinder the real economy and financial markets. I'm going to argue that negative rates are a useful, albeit aggressive, tool for stimulating an economy where all the standard tools have proven insufficient. More importantly, I think they're working by helping economies stimulate growth and avoid deflation. I'm much more skeptical. I believe negative rates can cause serious distortions, particularly if they're left in place for long periods of time. They're a tax on bank earnings that will weigh on future credit creation. And if left in place for long enough, their effect on consumption and savings could actually be the opposite of what's intended. All right, before we get into the specifics, I think we need to take a step back and frame out exactly what negative interest rates actually are. Yes, negative interest rates are an odd concept, to say the least. We are used to a world where you have to pay to borrow money, so I pay interest and principal on my mortgage, my credit card charges me to carry a balance. Under negative interest rates, this is all reversed. You actually have to pay somebody to take your money, or you get paid to take theirs. Now, normally if I lent somebody money and they didn't give all of it back to me, that would be considered theft or default. But under negative interest rates, this is not only acceptable behavior, in fact, to the degree that it's been agreed, this is the best case outcome for the lender. And that flips many relationships in finance upside down. A lot of people would have heard of the miracle of compound interest, the eighth wonder of the world, according to Albert Einstein. Money invested grows over time. You start with a little bit of savings, and with enough compounding and patience, it grows into a large payout. But under negative interest rates, Compound interest implies that your savings actually get smaller and smaller. Eventually, they vanish into nothing. It's not exactly water into wine. No, it's uh, not that attractive. And it has some, as well as being conceptually challenging, there are some practical issues as well. When you buy a bond, you typically get coupon payments. Then at maturity, you get your principal back. That's the money you lent out at the start. With negative interest rates, therefore, you might think that there are negative coupons, that the owners of bonds have to send money back to the person who borrowed it. But actually, payment systems and custodians aren't set up to handle cash flows moving in that direction. There's no mechanism by which the owners of, for example, a German government bond that yields negative, for them to send money back to the German treasury. And even if you were able to do that, you create new problems. For example, what would happen if I failed to make that payment? Would I be in default? Well, the only way to avoid those complications is to keep the coupon floored at zero. It really can't get lower than that. That means you have to adjust the principal in order to achieve negative interest rates. So I'll give an example. Assume I have a one-year bond with a negative 1% interest rate. If the lowest the coupon can get is zero, then the only way to get to negative 1% interest is for the bond to cost 101 today. It's a negative rate because I only get 100 back in a year. So it pays no coupon and I get 1% less money back at maturity. Now to a lot of people, this would all sound pretty fanciful and it's hard to imagine how or why interest rates would actually get negative. Unfortunately, this isn't theoretical. So far, central banks in Europe, 
Japan and Switzerland have all cut their main policy rates into negative territory. At this point, more than 9.4 trillion euros of sovereign debt, that's bonds issued by governments, trades at a negative yield. In fact, even some companies have managed to borrow at a negative yield. To give a sense of the numbers involved, three-year bonds, that's the name for bonds issued by Germany, are trading at minus 70 basis points. That means an investor would buy a zero-coupon bond today for 102 euros, and in three years' time they'd only get back 100 euros. In Switzerland, that bond would cost you 103 francs, and in Japan, 101 yen. You have to ask yourself, why would anyone ever buy a bond that has a negative rate? Surely it would make sense to just hold that money in cash at a zeroed interest rate. Yeah, and that might be sensible for a small amount of money, but imagine carrying around your whole net worth in your wallet in the form of bills. Or even if you put yourself in a position of a big corporation or a pension fund or an insurance company with billions under management, they obviously can't keep that much cash. There's risks of theft, of fire, or damage. And actually, there's only so much cash in circulation. You couldn't actually you know, hold that much cash across the economy. If you're managing big pools of assets, in reality, there isn't such a thing as cash. You need to actually have an asset. You need to be invested in something. It's either invested with a bank or it's invested in a bond. And the only safe assets available in places like Europe and Japan come with negative interest rates. All right, now we can get into the debate. So to reiterate, I think negative rates are a natural extension of accommodative monetary policy. They're being employed in economies where it's needed, and frankly, where it's working. If anything, what's holding back the effectiveness of negative rates is that they are not being fully utilized. Certain parts of the system have been insulated from them. And I believe that negative rates are causing more harm than good particularly over the long run, due to the way they affect bank balance sheets and the way they inflate the fu- cost of future spending. All right, so I'm going to use Europe as an example, although the basics of this argument apply to all of the other economies that have negative rates. So the European Central Bank, or ECB, recently reduced its lowest policy rate down to minus 50 basis points, or negative one-half of 1%. Now, for background, economic growth in Europe has been disappointingly low, since the twin sovereign and credit crises that started over a decade ago. Along with this, inflation has been extremely low. Actually, Europe has been at risk of sliding into deflation when prices fall. So inflation fell, for example, from uh, about 1.7% in expectation using some market-based mechanisms down to an expectation of future inflation of only 1%, which starts to get policymakers really nervous. This is considered a pretty dangerous set of circumstances. Absolutely. The euro area is in a difficult economic position, reflecting demographics, that's an aging population, as well as structural impediments to faster growth, such as relatively rigid labour markets. On top of this, many of the long-term solutions to these problems, such as those that were imposed on Southern Europe during the euro area crisis, are actually disinflationary. They make inflation fall in the short term, with better growth only coming through with a pretty significant lag. All right. So the European Central Bank did all the obvious things, similar to what the U.S. Federal Reserve was doing while the U.S. economy was suffering. First, the ECB cut rates to zero, just like the Fed did here in the U.S. Second, they started buying assets in what's known as quantitative easing. Now, that's a little bit more complicated in Europe because you have 27 sovereigns that issue bonds, not just one U.S. Treasury. And across those sovereigns, there's a lot of variety in terms of credit quality. You have some more levered or risky sovereigns, like in Southern Europe. You also have some less risky sovereigns, like France and Germany. So in Europe, there's concerns about buying too much of any one country's debt, and that limits the ability of the central bank to buy government bonds. 
So they turn to buy what's called covered bonds, which are bonds that are backed by mortgages. They even started buying corporate bonds, not from banks, but from non-financial corporations. But it wasn't enough. Growth remained anemic, inflation kept falling, and so the ECB had to take the next logical step, and that's negative rates. So if we think dropping rates to zero gets people and companies borrowing and stimulates spending, then I don't see why going further, meaning taking rates negative, doesn't just offer more of the same. And so what's the effect been? Look, we talked about a lot of the structural and demographic issues. You highlighted some of them. On top of that, we've had pressures from global trade tensions. We've had pressures from from Brexit, all of this weighing on Europe. But Europe still managed to have positive growth. It's managed to avoid a deflationary spiral. Now, we don't have the counterfactual to compare to, but given these headwinds, I think it could have easily gotten a lot worse. The fact that it hasn't, I think, can be chalked up to negative rates. Hang on, Jeff. There's an assumption in your logic there, which is that the relationship between interest rates and the economy is simple and linear. If you just keep cutting interest rates, eventually you'll get the growth and inflation outcomes that you want. But there are good reasons to believe that that may not be the case in Europe. For example, European households own less equities than US households. When the ECB engages in asset purchases, the rise in the value of those assets isn't felt as wealth by households. Their long-term savings are in the form of savings products and pension funds that have defined benefits. And again, the returns on those are not linked to financial markets, so they don't feel the same compulsion to spend their newfound wealth. There are also important differences in the mortgage market. European mortgages generally don't have the same refinancing options that US mortgages do. This means that you don't get a wave of mortgage refinancing when interest rates fall, and you don't get a wave of increased income from households enjoying those lower mortgage interest payments. In Europe, it happens much more gradually, either as people move homes or when they choose to refinance, which is normally at the end of a fixed period. Okay, but in some areas, you do get the response that I would expect. Take the foreign exchange or currency markets. There's no doubt that cutting rates weakens the euro relative to other developed market currencies, and that's beneficial to the European economy, especially as a buffer against the effects of global trade tension. Not so fast. If the ECB existed in isolation, I would agree with you. But if we get a race to the bottom, where all the major central banks are cutting interest rates to low or negative levels, then that comparative advantage starts to be eroded. The ECB has been relatively aggressive, and there probably has been some benefit to the euro in terms of depreciation. But we now have the US Federal Reserve cutting, and you would expect that to act as a break on further devaluation. What we risk here is a situation where all the central banks go negative, that currency benefit no longer exists, but we're still stuck with all of the downside of negative interest rates. Okay, so a lending is another channel where I think negative interest rates can help an economy. We wrote a piece recently about how banks have responded to negative rates, and we found that so far banks have increased loans and cut loan interest rates, which means that negative rates have resulted in increased lending. Now, the reason why banks are are responding to negative rates by increasing their lending is that they simply can't afford to hold assets like government debt, which have negative yields. The only way that they can make any actual money is to loan it out into the real economy. Banks have made more loans to the real economy so far, but our analysis also showed that banks, as you said, are supporting this activity by rotating the assets on their balance sheets, and this has natural limits. Once we reach those limits, negative interest rates really start to hurt banks, in particular because in the euro area, and this is contrary to many perceptions, banks primarily fund themselves with deposits, 
and primarily those are household deposits where banks are not yet charging negative interest rates. This means that every 10 basis point cut in interest rates by the ECB costs the banking system nearly 14 billion euros based on our estimates because the rates on the loans and other assets that they hold continues to fall but the deposits being used to fund them remain flawed at zero. Well, 14 billion euros every 10 basis points of rate cuts, you know, rates in Europe are at minus 50 basis points right now and probably going lower. So that's a substantial amount of lost income for the banking system. It is. And that income could be used to finance more loans. The point at which these negatives, that lost income, starts to overwhelm the former positives is called the reversal rate. And I worry that in the euro area, the banking system is close to that point. Okay, so one perspective on negative rates that you hear from a lot of academic economists is that flooring deposits at zero is a mistake. And going back to your argument about the pressure on the banks, the real source of the pressure on the banks is that they don't pay negative rates on deposits. They floor those at zero. So in other words, a lot of folks think that negative rates won't fully work until they affect every part of the economy. And in this thinking, the problem with negative rates in Europe isn't negative rates per se, but they haven't, but that they have not been fully implemented. That's a nice segue into my second critique. You see, so far your defense of negative interest rates has ignored what I'm going to refer to as balance sheet considerations. You see, when interest rates are left low for a very long period of time, you can actually change the incentives away from spending and towards saving. How does that work? Let me give you an example. Imagine that interest rates come down and that allows you to buy a new car or maybe a slightly bigger car because the cost of those loan repayments has come down. That's great, you have a nice new car, maybe you're able to buy a bigger house. But once you've made those large purchases, you have to start thinking about your future spending, your retirement savings. And here negative interest rates really hurt because now every penny you save today, every cent you save tomorrow and every day going forward will be worth less in the future which means you have to save more between now and retirement to reach those same future hopes and aspirations. And this problem gets worse the longer you have negative rates. It would also get worse if you were to apply negative rates to deposits, as you've suggested. Okay, now that critique seems to be more about low rates in general rather than something that's specific to negative rates. So, you know, if yields are low, I need to save more to generate future wealth. That's true even as I get close to zero, never mind going to negative interest rates. So I'm not sure why this critique wouldn't apply to the U.S., for example, where the Federal Reserve has cut rates three times already this year after a, a decade of already having very low rates in the aftermath of the crisis. In other economies like the U.S., the threshold, that reversal rate, could well be at a different level of interest rates. As we mentioned earlier, household balance sheets in the US own more equities and they own more financial assets, so they benefit more from the price appreciation that comes alongside falling interest rates. Also keep in mind that Europe's had negative interest rates for five years and we expect them to remain in place for much longer. And the importance of that time dimension should not be overlooked. All right, so we agree that Europe is in a tough spot. It needs stimulus. The regular tools available to the ECB were not sufficient to get the economy moving. So if you don't think that it's even more negative rates that's the right response, what is it that the ECB is supposed to do? To be honest, I don't think the answer lies with the ECB at all. And I would agree with the comments that have come from former ECB President Mario Draghi and incoming ECB President Christine Lagarde that it's time for the fiscal authority, that's government spending, to step up and do their part. 
I'm going to throw this back at you. You've argued that one of the failures of negative interest rates so far is that they haven't reached the whole economy, in particular households. But it's households that we're expecting to show greater consumption or corporates to show greater investment. Yet the one place where we definitively have seen negative interest rates pass through to the cost of borrowing is the government bond market. Yet in euro area, we haven't seen governments step up to spend and invest. In fact, we've seen austerity and we've seen fiscal rules. So maybe it's time for the government to take their own advice and to follow their own signals and to start using negative interest rates to borrow and spend. All right. Well, if we see that, that'll be the topic of another episode of The Flipside. Thanks for joining. Investors can read about our latest take on negative interest rates in Negative Rates and Euro Area Banks, The Problem and the Solutions, and in Negative Rates, A Nonlinear Dilemma for European Banks, both available on Barclays Live. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on The Flip Side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com slash IB.